Good evening, everyone. It's another beautiful evening in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to Steward Observatory. And we welcome those of you listening to us on the World Wide Web, either at iTunes U or streaming at the www.as.arizona.edu website. This is the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture Series, started in 1922 by Professor Andrew Ellicott Douglas. Tonight, before we introduce tonight's speaker, I would just like to remind you that uh, I have flyers of uh, upcoming lectures, but I also wanted to bring your attention to the special lecture that we're going to have next Wednesday. On November the 5th, uh, Professor Timothy Rowe, Regents Professor at the University of Texas, is a paleontologist, and he is here courtesy of the Phi Beta Kappa Society, and he will give a lecture on the topic of what happened to the dinosaurs. 7.30 in this room, but on a Wednesday night, we even have the telescope open afterwards for viewing, but I have flyers giving his abstract so you can read about what the talk's going to be about. And I hope that I can see, we'll see some of you there next Wednesday night. If you are a student here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment. I will do it down here at this table at the conclusion of the question and answer period. Right. Also, it is a clear night. Our telescope, the Raymond D. White 21-inch reflecting telescope, is open for public viewing. If you've never been here before, it's the white building with the big white dome on top, the original observatory, and it will be open for your public viewing. Dan, is there anything that you... Oh, and Daniel Petricelli is here. He's our development officer here at Stewart Observatory. If you are not on our email list, Okay, where we send you updates whenever I come up with a new lecture schedule or if we have to make last minute changes. If you'd like to be on our email distribution list, please give your name and email address on that sheet and we will put you on the list. So without further ado, I would like to introduce tonight's speaker. One of the things I like to do in the public evening lecture series is introduce you to new faculty. And this year, we're going to have three new faculty that I'm going to be introducing you to, uh, to, one in January and another one in March. But right now we've got Professor Caitlin Cratter. Caitlin received her bachelor's degree in astrophysics from Barnard College, part of Columbia University in New York City. She then received her PhD from the University of Toronto in astronomy and astrophysics. She had two postdoctoral appointments before coming to Stewart Observatory, one at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and the other one, the University of Colorado in Boulder. She was a Hubble Fellow. Now, that's pretty prestigious, okay, to get the Hubble Fellowship. It's, there's, there's a stiff competition for that. She did that at uh, Colorado, and then she came here to us from Boulder. And uh, she is one of our bright, young faculty, uh, it's the way we keep, as, as Professor Douglas said, uh, using Stewart Observatory for public nights is fun and nice, but the observatory will die if we don't keep, keep investing in new research and bringing in new blood and new people to do interesting and exciting things in astronomy, astrophysics, and space science. So without further ado, I call upon Professor Caitlin Cratter to give a talk on the architecture of planetary systems at home and abroad. All right, well, thank you, Tom, for that uh, lovely introduction. Uh, is the volume okay for everyone in here? Okay, I think Tom's going to turn it down. I warned him I'm really loud. 
And I'm just getting started, so when I get going, it gets even worse, so beware. Uh, so, so as Tom said, it's, uh, you know, I'm a relatively new faculty member here. I've been here just under a year, uh, so I'm looking forward to my first fall in Arizona. I'm glad to see that the clouds are finally clearing. Um, although, as you'll probably see by the end of the talk, full disclosure, the toys that I use are not telescopes, but giant computers, like the one that we have here in Arizona, which is actually currently still a top 500 machine, although that may change. Uh, maybe even tomorrow, these things go very fast. So just to give you a sense of who I am, I want to introduce myself uh, with a word cloud. And in, uh, in light of the fact that it's Halloween in a couple days, I think you can tell that's a pumpkin. Uh, it's supposed to be a pumpkin. So this word cloud is actually composed of words from the titles of all of my published work. So if there's a word on here, it means you have every right to ask me about it and I can answer it. If the word's not on here, I don't know if I can help you. But uh, in general, I work on topics related to planet formation, planetary dynamics, star formation, binary star systems, uh, and accretion disks. And so I'll touch mostly on the planetary topics today, but if you're interested in any of those other topics, please don't hesitate to come up to me after the, the talk. I'd be happy to chat with you. Um, all right, so moving on to the main subject of the day, the architecture of planetary systems. So what do we mean by architecture? I think we all think of architecture, okay, that's a building, maybe it's a great church, maybe it's a fancy museum. Um, but when I use the word architecture, I mean it in a similar sense in that how things are put together. So what can we learn about planetary systems from knowing how they're put together? So what I'm going to try to discuss today are how do we find planets? And I'll differentiate between how we found the planets in our own solar system and how we find the planets that orbit distant stars, what we, also, what we often call exoplanets. Um, I'll talk about how both our solar system planets and exoplanetary systems differ. How are they constructed? How are the planets put next to each other? How do you decide if there's an Earth and a Mars next to each other? Or maybe you have a Mars next to uh, a Mercury in some systems, or a Jupiter next to an Earth. Exoplanetary systems are much more diverse than we, we would have ever imagined even 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And so I'll try to give you a sense of that development. I'll spend a little bit of time talking about how planets form, and then I'll talk about how uh, these, these different systems are configured. So let me go back in history and start with our own solar system. How did we discover the planets in our solar system? Well, for a lot of them, it's pretty straightforward. Mercury through Saturn, we're not quite sure who detected them, but they were all detected with the naked eye. Uh, even you know, in a place that's dark enough like Tucson, it's pretty easy to see most of the planets with your naked eye. And ancient astronomers looked at the sky and they saw, well, there's these things that are bright and they're moving kind of funny. They don't look like the rest of the stars. And they figured out that they were different. Even if at the time they didn't quite understand why they were different, why they sometimes appeared to move backwards in the sky, they didn't have the geometry figured out necessarily, but they, they could track their motions and understand them. Uh, we had to wait a little bit longer to get the next, the, the, the next uh, brightest planet in the solar system, which is Uranus. And that was discovered by Herschel with the invention of a telescope because he needed to magnify the light in order to see it. Uh, Neptune is one of my favorites um, because as indicated here by this uh, little chalkboard drawing, Neptune was actually discovered or at least inferred just using math because they looked at the orbit of Uranus and they thought, gosh, we know what, we know what gravity is supposed to do to orbits. We know how this planet should be moving if it's really only worried mostly about the gravitational pull of our sun 
and maybe a little bit of the gravitational pull from Jupiter, which is the other big bully in the solar system because it's so massive. It's the next most massive body. But they said, well, it's not moving right. And so several different people, uh, Adams uh, and Leverrier, they sort of wrote down the equations. They said, well, if it's doing that in its orbit, there must be another planet outside of its orbit yanking on it. And by that prediction, they were then able to say, okay, if, if, this is, if this is really true, if there's another guy yanking on it, if you go look here tonight, you should see it. And in fact, they were able to discover it. Now, there's, there's actually some debate, which is why I have a star, that maybe Galileo had actually observed Neptune, but he hadn't quite figured out that it was a planet. There's still quite a bit of discussion on this uh, among people who study the history of astronomy, but I don't have time to go into that today. And then, of course, there's the minor planets, things like Pluto and other trans-Neptunian objects, things that are sort of kind of funky compared to the rest of the planets, um, but they're still worth mentioning. And, uh, you know, the Pluto, of course, has an Arizona history because that was discovered at Lowell Observatory. And then there's been several more recent systems that have been discovered by uh, people like Mike Brown at, at Caltech. So this is sort of the, the solar system method of finding planets. You can see it's pretty diverse. So now um, let's just look at what we have. This is the solar system in a logarithmic view. So that means that this separation scale, so this is measured in uh, AU, where 1 AU is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, and the terrestrial planets in here, they're scaled up by a factor of 10, so you can sort of see them on the same plot as the uh, giants of our solar system. So we've got the terrestrial planets, the gas giants, the ice giants, and then we've got these little belts of tiny bodies, which we call the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt. And what I'll talk about later on is that these are what we think of as planetesimal belts. These are the things that are the, the origin objects for the planets in our solar, solar system. We think that this is how all of these bodies started out. And so there's a couple things I want to note about our own solar system. And, and for, for many, many years, uh, people who studied planet formation thought, well, our solar system, this is obviously the great model. Things are pretty simple. You've got the rocky bodies on the inside and the bigger gas and ice bodies on the outside, and we can explain this in this very simple way. It's too hot in here to get ice things and gas things, and it's too cold out here, so you get ice and you get more gas, and things should always be ordered in this nice way, and then you've got these little leftovers in between. And as I'll show you in a minute, the situation got much more complicated when we just started to discover thousands, literally thousands of planets outside of our own solar system. So how did we find these so-called exoplanets? So the two sort of workhorse methods of exoplanet detection are known as the radial velocity technique and the transit technique. So I'm going to go in historical order. The radial velocity technique was the first way that we discovered exoplanets. And this is basically using the Doppler shift with which you're all familiar when the sirens go by. So when a siren goes by, right, the pitch changes as it's coming towards you and then away from you. So that's because the sound waves are getting compressed as they're coming towards you and then they're getting stretched out as it's going away from you. And that compression versus stretching, that translates to hearing a different sound. The same thing happens with light waves. If I shine a flashlight at you and run towards you, the wavelengths get compressed. And if I do the same thing and run away, they get, they get stretched out. And that process is known as red shifting and blue shifting, depending on whether you're moving towards or away. And so 
the idea is that if you have uh, a planetary system, an exoplanet that's orbiting around a star, remember that we like to think of the star or the sun as just sitting fixed in one place and the planets all running around. But in fact, they're doing a little dance. So it's not just that the planet's walking around the star, but it's kind of yanking back on it, right? So it's like me. I, you know, I have to yank kind of hard to move the table, but I can move the table. The same thing happens with planets. They move their star a little bit, and the star does a lot more moving. But as the star moves, you get this process of it, of it being pulled sort of towards you by the planet, and then it goes away from you. And when it comes towards you, the light gets blue shifted, and when it goes away, the light gets red shifted. And we can measure the change in the color of the light, and we can infer that there's a planet orbiting about it as a result. So it's by looking at the change in the color of the light coming from the stars that we can tell that there are planets. Now this maybe seems uh, a little bit um, esoteric, and so I'll talk about some of the other methods that are a little bit more maybe easy to understand, but this really was the way that uh, almost all of the known exoplanets were discovered in the 90s and early 2000s. The second workhorse method is the transit method, and this is pretty simple. This is what you might also know of as an eclipse, where you have a planet, and it goes in front of the star, and as it crosses in front of the star, as you can see with this light curve, this is brightness on the y-axis here, and time on the x-axis, and so you watch the brightness of the star and time, click, 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 the planet comes across, and it causes a little dip because it blocks out some of the light from the star. So uh, you can actually uh, also not only observe it when the planet comes in front of the star, but when the planet then goes behind the star, you get what's called a secondary eclipse, where when, you know, you can imagine when the planet is over here, you're actually seeing the combined light from the planet and the star. Now the light from the planet's pretty small, there's not a lot of it, but you can detect it. We can actually see planet plus star over here, uh, star minus planet here, again, planet plus star here, and then we get star minus planet back here. And so this transit method, maybe you can see why this is a little bit uh, more uh, rare of an event. And that's because it relies on a very special alignment between the star and the planet relative to our line of sight on Earth. There's no reason that any given planet and star system somewhere on the galaxy knows that I'm trying to look at it and it's going to like tilt its plane so that it blocks out the light so I see it. There's no reason it's going to do that. So it's only very rare cases which just happen to be aligned so that we can see them, that we get to detect this way. But if you've heard of the Kepler space mission, have people heard of the Kepler satellite? So this is how Kepler does it. And the reason Kepler is so good at it is because it just stared at one patch of the sky kind of unblinking for four years. And then it had many, many opportunities to see the systems that were just so aligned so we could see them like this. Just to show you a couple examples to give you a sense of the exquisiteness of the light curves that we got from Kepler, these are just some of the first detections, um, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, the B means it's the planet, Kepler-4 is the star. And so you can see here just how tiny of a blip we're able to detect when that planet crosses in front of the star. Some of them are quite small. This is uh, a value of one here if you can't read that, and that's 0.995, so that's 0.5% is be all the way down here. A 0.5% would be a huge whopping signal. This is less than 0.1%. So uh, the other really neat thing that you can maybe see along the bottom here 
is that because we know a lot about stars, we know how big they are. If we take a picture of a star, we measure its properties from its light, we know how big it is. So when we see a planet cross in front of it, if we know how big the star is, we also get to know how big the planet is. And because we know something about how planets are, are made, that they're made of rock and gas, we can also sometimes say things about the masses. And so that can be very powerful for understanding um, planet formation in general. So there's a couple other exoplanet detection methods that I just don't want to leave out because they do work and we have made some pretty phenomenal detections with them, but they're a little bit harder. So uh, kind of the, the coolest one maybe in some ways is gravitational lensing. And that's where we use the fact that uh, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity tells us that uh, gravitational masses bend light. And so if we have a star pass in front of another star, it actually causes the light coming to us on Earth to change a little bit. It gets brighter and then dims as it passes in front of it due to the way that it's sort of refocusing light around this other uh, massive body. And if there's a planet that happens to orbit that star, the signal changes a little bit and you get this blip. So there's been about a dozen, I think, uh, exoplanets that were detected from gravitational lensing. Although, again, you can't do a lot of follow-up, so that can be a little bit frustrating. Uh, another method that is uh, predicted to become very powerful in the next maybe five to ten years, depending on the sensitivity of some of our upcoming space missions, is what's known as astrometry. And so here you can see that, that um, we're showing how the star is moving as a, as a function of the orbit of the planet. So in this case, you can actually detect the motion of the body around the sort of center of mass. And you can use this shift to measure the mass of the planet and also the orbital period. And then it seems maybe sad that I've left, left this till the end, but then there's just sort of imaging, which is just taking a picture. You look at a star, you take a picture of it, and you find planets. And maybe to those of us here on Earth, that seems like, oh, God, why don't you just do that every time? Wouldn't that be easier? But you have to remember that planets are really tiny and really dim. Planets don't undergo nuclear fusion. They don't have a, an extra light source. So in order to detect planets like this, we have to do a whole lot of work as observers to block out the light from the central star so that we can see the planets hiding in the shadow. So this is something that's actually a really a big achievement here at the University of Arizona. Um, we have these very, very advanced uh, telescope systems uh, where we use something called adaptive optics uh, to help get rid of the light from the central star in order to make these kinds of really phenomenal detections. So keep an eye on the news because I expect you'll be hearing a lot more about that um, from Tucson in the, in, the coming, uh, in the coming months and years. So let's just put this all together. Um, what I'm showing here is a plot. Uh, you can go online and you can make a plot like this yourself. There's a website, exoplanets.org. This is just showing sort of a summary of all of the exoplanets that we know about now. So on the x-axis here, we have the separation between the star and the planet. Again, this is 1 AU. This is where Earth is. So these things are all relative to Earth. So 0.1, 100 out here. And then this is the planet mass measured in Jupiter masses. And so what you can see here is I've also added some other colors on this. So uh, the blue-red scale tells you whether or not the planets are, as far as we know, alone in their systems. If we just see one planet going around the star, and things that are red means that we see at least two planets going around the same star. And so now we're starting to get to what I think is the really cool part, which is this architecture. 
The idea that you have multiple planets, like our own solar system, there's not just one, we don't just have Earth, we have eight of them. And so these red systems, some of them have two, three, four, five, six planets. So very much like our own solar system. Now the black points, uh, those are actually uh, data from the Kepler uh, space mission that I was just talking to you about. And because of the way that the, um, the data were taken, they're sort of shown in a different scale. And so they're not, the multi-systems aren't shown on here in the same way. So uh, that's just a function of trying to get all of our databases uh, lined up correctly. So there's the color. And then the other thing you might notice is that I have two different sized dots. There's the little dots and the big dots. And what that's telling you is that the little dots, those are systems where you have one star and you know one or more planets. The big dots are where you have a binary star system. So you have two stars that orbit around each other. And in some cases, you have one star here, and it's got a planet, and then there's another star way out here going around both of them. But I'll talk about, in a little bit more detail, some of the other systems where you have two stars that are quite close to each other, and then there's a circumbinary planet going around both. So it's not just that we have all of these different separations a wider range than in our own solar system, right? In our own solar system, we don't have any of the guys living down here. We also have a much wider range of masses, right? We don't have any of these bigger than Jupiter mass guys here. So there's this great diversity, not just in the type of planet, but also in the type of systems. And so we had this really nice, clean view of how planet formation worked from our own solar system. And in the last 20 years, we've had to throw it out the window because it didn't even come close to explaining most of the systems that we observe. There's this much greater diversity. And so I want to just highlight some of the most surprising things we've found in the last couple decades, just to give you a sense of what these other exoplanetary systems are like. So the first thing I'll talk about are these so-called hot Jupiters. And you've maybe heard of these because these were among the first things that we discovered. These are really massive planets, as big or even bigger than our own Jupiter and they live really, really close to their host star. Periods of three days, four days, five days. And that's why they're called hot, because they're very close to their star, and so they get a lot of radiation from the star. Um, so they can have temperatures as high as 2,000 Kelvin. So again, it doesn't matter what scale you're talking about, if it's Celsius, Fahrenheit, or Kelvin, by the time you get up into thousands, it's just really hot. You can remember our star in those units is like 5,500. Six, sorry, 6,500 Kelvin. Uh, so it's really, really hot. The other thing that's pretty cool about hot Jupiters, and I'll talk about this more in a little bit, is that they're tidally locked, meaning that one face always faces the, the star. So when it's going around the star, it's always looking at it. It just keeps orbiting like this, all the way around, much like our moon does with the Earth. And so you can imagine that creates very, very strange weather patterns on these systems because one side is always getting a whole lot of sun, and the other side never gets anything. And that's another thing that University of Arizona is very well known for. We actually have a lot of people here who are studying in detail, especially in LPL, how this circulation works and what that might tell us about the construction of these planets. So another diverse system that we've seen in exoplanet systems that is very unlike anything we have in our own solar system are these compact systems of super-Earth. So these are systems where you have one, two, three, four, five planets all packed within the orbit of Mercury. So if we, if we compare the relative spacing of these guys to our own solar system, this is where they live. 
So they have orbital periods of one, three, four, seven, and, and nearly 10 days. So they're much, much closer in. And we call them super-Earths because, what do you know, they have radii that are bigger than Earth. So we don't really have any planets in our solar system that live in this part of the parameter space. We have some things that are smaller than Earth, right, Mercury and Mars, and we have things that are much, much bigger than Earth, like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, but we don't have any of these guys, and we certainly don't have any orbits in here. And so again, these are just very, very hard to understand in our classic planet formation model that we developed when we were thinking about our own solar system. Another type of very, very different planet that we've observed now are the uh, wide-orbit giant planets. So this is, again, an example of one of those direct, uh, directly imaged systems, and this was taken by um, a postdoc here in Arizona, uh, Andrew Skemmer, and this was taken with an Arizona instrument. This is on uh, LBT. And so what you see here, there's a star that's been blocked out in the middle, and then there are four planets that are on a nice, relatively, relatively circular orbits around this star with masses anywhere from five to ten times that of Jupiter. They are huge. And again, our planet formation models never predicted that we'd see anything like this. And for reference, our solar system is all within, basically, uh, most of this noise here. Our outer planets in our solar system live right around where this guy E does. This uh, outermost planet here, B, has a separation 70 times that between the Earth and the Sun, so 70 AU. So the outermost things that you know, we think of as planets in our solar system are half, half that distance, maybe 30 AU. So again, these are really, really different systems. And I promised I would talk about the uh, circumbinaries as well because I think these are, these are actually really fun. Um, so these are systems, like I said, where you have two stars that are in a close orbit. So this is one example, uh, Kepler-47, where you have two stars that have about a seven-day orbital period around each other. And then you have uh, two other planets that have periods of, say, 50 days and about 300 days that are in orbit about the center of mass of this binary star system. So when we observe these types of, type of systems, it's very, very complex. These were discovered with that transit technique where you have those eclipses. And so you've got the eclipses from the star, and then you've got two planets that are eclipsing both stars. So the light curves are just incredibly complicated, and it takes hundreds of thousands of computer models to be able to take one of those light curves and turn it into one of these systems. And just to give you an example of uh, more work being done here at Arizona, this is actually a simulation of that system done by a, a new graduate student here, Rachel Smolin. And what, she's, what you're seeing here, actually, there is that inner planet that I just showed you on the previous slide and that outer planet that you also saw. But now the the sort of best models predict that there's actually a third planet in here. So you have three bodies going around two stars. So again, when we start thinking about this architecture question, how do you possibly construct a system with this kind of complex hierarchical set of orbits? We, we're still trying to understand it. This is what we're working on here. We're trying to figure out how we could make a system that looked like this. And so, that's what I really want to think about now is, is can there be one formation mechanism that can produce this insane diversity of systems? Do we have one theory that can explain it all? What I'll argue is that I think we have a pretty solid theory for planet formation. There's some details that aren't worked out. And one of the nice things about some of the complexities 
of the model we have for planet formation is complexities can translate into diversity. So if you have a model and you say, well, if I change something by a little bit, I get pretty different answers, right? If you imagine, imagine that you had like a, a volume knob on your television and, and as you tuned it up, you got, you know, if you made one little click to the left, things got really, really quiet. And you got one little click to the right, things got really, really loud. So that's kind of what we have with some of our models of planet formation. We do a little bit of change and we get this huge range of systems. And so we think we maybe are trying to getting to a point where we can understand how these, these things formed, but there's a lot of details left to be worked out. So I'll give you just the basic story now so you have a sense of what we're, what we're working with. So the basic idea is that our model for planet formation is sort of a natural consequence of the star formation process. So we have stars, we know you have to make those. We make stars out of these clouds of gas and dust that starts on scales maybe 10,000, maybe even 100,000 times the size of our own solar system. And it takes maybe 10,000 years to get that process started. And then as that cloud of gas and dust starts to collapse, there's some rotation in it. And as a consequence of angular momentum conservation, which I'll talk about in one more second, you form a flat disk of material that's rotating about that star. And it's out of this disk of gas and dust that the planets begin to form. And I'll t walk you through each of the different stages of that. Just to remind you why you get a disk, because that's really fundamental to the planet formation process. It's basically the same process that makes this ice skater spin up or that makes your pizza dough get flat when you throw it, right? That you have some amount of rotation on a large scale. When you pull your arms in and you make yourself smaller, the rotation gets faster and faster. So it's the same thing. There's maybe a little bit of rotation on large scales in these clouds of gas and dust, and then gravity brings them down together. You get a star at a center, and then that conservation of angular momentum spins things up. So how do we actually make the planets? I said it's connected to the star formation process, but how do you make the planets themselves? There's four stages, we think. You start out going from what I call dust to planetesimals. So you take tiny, tiny dust grains, things that are much smaller than your eye can see, smaller than a centimeter, smaller than a millimeter, micron-sized things, and those can start to form dust bunnies, basically, little conglomerations of particles, maybe up to centimeters in size, maybe a little bit bigger. And then what we think happens are that there are instabilities that arise between the dust and the gas in this disk. And that can cause these things that are maybe only centimeters in size to coagulate together all the way up to bodies that are 100 kilometers across, so bigger than the city of Tucson. And when you get a whole bunch of these things that are many, many kilometers across, they can start to collide with one another because they actually feel each other's gravity and you get things that are as big as maybe the core of the Earth. So uh, they, they interact with each other as they're roaming around uh, their own suns. They crash. You can get very, very violent collisions. Some material is thrown back off and makes dust, but a lot of it sticks together. And we think we have evidence that so something like this happened on our own Earth. And once these cores, these protoplanets, get massive enough, depending on how big they are and where they live, they can actually start sucking up atmospheric gas from the, that, that disk. And so that's how we transition from these rocky things to things that look like Jupiter, where we think Jupiter maybe has a core that's a few times the size of Earth that's made of rock at the center, 
but then most of it is just this diffuse hydrogen and helium. And that's when it starts, it gets that material from this disk of stuff that's trying to go onto the star. And then one of the other exciting parts is that sort of final stage. And this is where a lot of our diversity comes from. Because just because you make a planet somewhere in the disk doesn't mean it stays there. There's all sorts of processes, which I'll talk about in a second, that can take a planet and have it start maybe at five times the distance between the Earth and the Sun and then move all the way into one times that distance. Or maybe it can even move out to ten times that distance. Or it can start out on a circular orbit and end up on a very eccentric orbit. So there's a lot of diversity that can be formed in this last stage. So again, just to, I want to really emphasize that one of the really cool things about studying planet formation is that you get to consider physics on so many scales. Because we're talking about going from uh, dust grains. Has anybody here seen the exozodiacal dust? Has anybody ever observed that? Okay, a few of you, yeah. So, so you can go from all the way from these sizes. This is the stuff that, you know, our planets are made of all the way up to the size of Earth. And so if we just look at, again, the scales involved, this is something that's, you know, 1% of a millimeter, 0.01 millimeters, whereas this is 70,000 kilometers. So I know there's some students in the audience, so you're going to get extra credit here. How many orders of magnitude does my planet formation process cover? I'll give you, I'll give you one minute. I have the numbers on here, 0.01 millimeters, 70,000 kilometers. I'll give you a hint. Pick your favorite unit and convert that one and that one into that unit. Can you do it in your head? Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you, uh, anyone have a guess? Anyone want to guess? Who's, somebody said something? Seven? Seven, seven, zero. So not seven, zero. Any other brave guessers? Ten, so, so that would be seven orders of magnitude. So now I, I want ten, and so it's not seven. Anyone else? Oh, someone was very close. I think if I did my math right, the answer is 14 orders of magnitude. So that's one with 14 zeros across it. After it, sorry. So again, it's a, such a phenomenal range of scales. There's just a lot of different physics going on. And actually, just tonight, uh, a paper came out uh, that was talking about one of the smallest scales. So I told you I was a theorist and I don't use telescopes. Um, but maybe you didn't know that uh, astrophysics is also an experimental science. So this is actually a laboratory experiment trying to understand the very earliest phases of planet growth by using a vacuum chamber and a, basically a refrigerator unit to shoot uh, water ice particles at another big chunk of ice and a zero gravity, low density vacuum environment. And so. This is the kind of stuff that is really fundamental to our understanding of planet formation now, uh, growing crazy ice cubes in labs in Germany. So uh, there's really a lot of, of, of pretty exciting stuff that we get to do when we study this process of planet formation. So I want to spend a little bit of time now on that, uh, that fourth stage I said, how planets move. I've talked about the fact that we get our initial our sort of initial setup as part of the star formation, that disk of gas and dust. And then there's this sort of, these phases of growth where you go from dust to rocks and from rocks to bigger rocks and then big rocks start to eat gas. And now I want to talk about how those rocks and, and things with gas move. So one of the first ways they move 
we call migration, you know, it just means moving, uh, in a disk of gas. And so this is a, a 2D simulation that I ran here at the University of Arizona on one of our big computers. And what you're seeing here is a planet kind of like Jupiter. And uh, that first part of the movie, it's going to loop again. We just sort of slowly turned it on, let it get more massive, and it opens up this gap of material in the disk. And now what you see happening is that it's moving. It might look like I've just taken a camera and zoomed it out, but that's not what's happening. What's actually happening is this planet is exchanging that angular momentum with this gas that's sitting on either side of it. And as it sort of torques and pulls on this gas and the gas pulls on it, that's why you get these spiral arm structures. And as a result of that, it actually moves in towards its central star. So we think this process where these massive planets interact with gas might explain some of these very hot Jupiter systems I spoke about, the ones where you have a really massive planet really, really close to the host star. It's by interacting with this natal disk of gas and dust that you might be able to move it. But there's another complication, which is that we don't always just form one planet, right? We have these systems that have many planets. And so in this simulation here, very similar, um, what we're looking at is a sort of much longer time scale example of what can happen when you not only let the planets interact with this background material, but you also let them interact with each other. So the planets are feeling the gravity of the other planets, and they're starting to kick each other around. And so what we're doing now is we're sort of uh, speeding up in time, and these little circles here show you the averaged orbits of these planets in time. You can see that they're changing as they clear out some of the gas because the planets have grown. They've gone from being relatively circular to much more eccentric, right? They're more elliptical, the orbits. And then what's happening here now is that as uh, the planets sit here in the center, the star actually is starting to kind of blow away the gas and dust in the disk. And so what started out, you may have noticed, there was actually three planets in that system initially, but the gravitational kicks between the planets actually kicked one guy out. And so one of them was lost from the system. So we have evidence for these type of interactions among the exoplanets that we've detected, where we see something that uh, we can't explain with the other parts of our planet formation theory, where we have a very eccentric elliptical orbit, very stretched out. And so we think that these probably formed via these scattering type uh, interactions. To make matters more complicated, it's not just that you can move around in this disk by interacting with gas you can actually move around by interacting with things that are a lot like uh, the asteroid belt. So these little guys, the big guys here, they're growing from these little protoplanetary, planetesimal-like things, but they're also interacting with them. So, so the fact that they moved around like that was due to the exchanging, again, energy and angular momentum between them. And what the color scale is on this plot, again, this is the distance on the x-axis, and now instead of mass, I'm showing the eccentricity on the y-axis. This color scale is showing how much water we expect these bodies to have based on where they started out in, the, in their own solar system. Because things that started out at very large radii, where maybe things are colder, we think those maybe had more water because water could be in ice form as opposed to in gas. So it turns out it's easier to, to, to get water if it's icy than if it's like steam. Um, ice is sticky, that's what that, um, that lab experiment I was showing you. Uh, 
was demonstrating. And so this is, again, just uh, a way that we can understand maybe not only how the planets are moving around, but also how they got their different compositions. Because depending on where they accreted most of their material from, that can determine what they're made of. And so one of the things we've been able to observe now are planets that are kind of the same size, but apparently have different masses. And so what we infer from them being the same physical size, but having different masses, is that they must be different densities. And if they're different densities, that means they're made of different stuff. So it's not, I mean, we know this from our own solar system, right? The Earth is not made of the same stuff as Jupiter. I mean, vaguely speaking, yes. Both of them have uh, rocks and things like that. But their densities are very, very different. And so um, that's actually one thing that we can, we can learn a lot about when we look at these multi-planet systems. We can actually use these multi-planet systems to learn uh, different things about the composition of the planets. But I want to just... Uh, step back a second and just say, well, how do I learn anything from multi-planet systems? What are the relevant questions to ask? Uh, I think an obvious one is, well, how many planets are there? That's one obvious characteristic of a multi-planet system. How close are they to one another? Do they interact? These are obviously pretty closely related. And then finally, are they stable? And what I mean by stable is, are their interactions so strong that as they go around, their orbits just change dramatically? on timescales much shorter than the lifetime of the solar system. Right, for our own solar system, we know that as long as we can remember, the planets have always kind of been where they are, their orbits aren't changing, and they're not predicted to change for billions of years. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on this evening. But the basic idea is that means stable. Their orbits are just kind of going to keep doing what they're doing for as long as we can imagine. But I'll show you that that's not always the case. There are systems when if you put things a little too close together, their mutual interactions are strong enough that they become unstable. So this is just a sample of some of the uh, multi-planet systems detected with Kepler. And again, I've got, uh, now I've got period on the x-axis. So you can think of this as basically the same thing as separation. That's just how long it takes them to go around. And then radius relative to Earth down here on the y-axis. And I'm not sure if you can make out the different symbols, but the uh, number of sides of the symbol tells you how many planets uh, are in the system. So there's like a triangle here that's got three. There's some squares, the purple guys, those have four. There's some pentagons in here that have five. Uh, there's a hexagons that have six. So yeah, there you see those, the green guys are the six suns. So you can see there's quite a, quite a variety of multi-planet systems. So how can we understand this ensemble. So the first question, how close can you pack a planetary system? So I've got two imaginary planetary systems here, and the one on the left are separated by 0.067 AU. So this is much closer than any of our planetary systems. And this guy is just a little bit bigger. If you watch carefully, the orbital evolution is very different. Do you see those orbits just crossed? And so what I've done here is I've placed these on sort of either side of the uh, boundary of stability. So this guy over here, uh, I can just calculate based on the masses and the separations of these planets that this will always become unstable. These orbits are going to cross. They're going to become eccentric. Whereas this guy over here was just a hair bigger. That's enough that the orbits are going to stay relatively circular for all time. And again, it's a function of not only the separations, 
what the mass is. Because remember, gravity cares about two things. It cares how massive each other, the other guy is, and it cares how far away it is. So if I take the same system now, I spaced it just like the one on the left that was stable, but I added another planet, now it's just a total mess. So this is our second hint, that if I have two planets, I can put them pretty close and they'll probably be stable for a long time. And I can actually write down analytically what that critical limit's going to be. The second I add in a third planet, that goes out the window. I can't do it analytically anymore. You have to use a computer because the, sy the system is not analytically sol solvable. And what happens is that once we get to this point where there's more than three, three or more planets in the system, it's, a system, it's basically chaotic, meaning that if I change the initial conditions just a tiny bit, the outcome can be quite different. And so then we have to use different metrics to understand what that means. And again, I'll talk about this in the context of the solar system in a little bit. But just keep in mind this kind of chaotic interaction. It's going to be important later. So that's one way that things can interact where it's kind of a mess. But there's other interactions that are maybe both more familiar and a little bit more stable. And these are things we call resonances. So the definition of a resonance is just it's a precise numerical relationship between frequencies or periods. And so there's, there's uh, the simplest one that we're all familiar with is the spin orbit resonance between the Earth and the Moon. And again, this is this idea of tidal locking. It means that the uh, Moon rotates at exactly the right speed so that it always keeps its same face pointed towards the Earth. So again, that's a spin orbit resonance. We can also have orbit-orbit resonances where you have a precise numerical relationship between the orbital periods of two bodies. And we have another example of that in our solar system, Pluto and Neptune. For every two times Neptune goes around the sun, Pluto goes around three times. There's a third type of resonance known as a secular resonance, and that's a little bit more subtle, and it can happen on longer timescales. One of the other fun resonances in our own solar system is not just two things that have a precise numerical relationship, but three. And these are the moons of Jupiter, Io, Europa, and Ganymede. And they're in a 1 to 2 to 4 mean motion resonance, known as a Laplace resonance. So if you watch it, you can see that this guy goes around once. Uh, this guy goes around uh, yeah, once compared to this guy going around twice. And then this guy goes around twice to that guy going around once. So it's a 1 to 2 to 4. And if you wait, they'll all, you'll see them line up as I'm talking. And so these are other types of interactions and we've actually observed exoplanetary systems that exhibit these same resonances. And it turns out that in many cases, these type of resonances can help to prevent those chaotic, messy dances I showed before, because they keep the orbits sort of well-behaved. So for example, if you have two orbits that are kind of close to one another, right? you might imagine that if they always end up right at their closest point to one another when they're physically next to each other, that's going to be much more stable, much less stable than if they, they have their orbital periods offset, just so that every time they would be really close, their orbital paths are really close, they're actually not in the same place at the same time. Right, so suppose that you know, this is the place where the orbits are closest. A resonance can make sure that the two planets never both happen to come in this line exactly at the same time. And that can prevent them from having these very, very uh, dramatic instabilities. So what about our own solar system? I said I wanted to talk about long-term stability, this idea that 
you know, are the, the planets in our solar system really not going to change their orbits sort of if we uh, integrate out to many, many billions of years from now? So this is examples of orbital evolution of uh, the inner planets in our own solar system. So this is sort of what they look like today. But actually what we find is that Mercury, which is the sort of the more eccentric of the planets, can have its orbit changed over very, very long time scales, billions of years, by an interaction with Jupiter. And so uh, we have these, these models that predict sort of how we think over, again, billions and billions of years, the orbits might evolve. But remember that when you start talking about things that happen on very, very long time scales, really tiny things can make a big difference. And so it turns out that our ability to predict the positions of planets in our own solar system billions of years from now depends on things like the asteroid belt. We would have to know the exact location and mass of everything in the asteroid belt in order for us to really know where the planets are going to be and how their orbits are going to evolve. And so there's a way in astronomy and, and uh, math that we try to characterize this idea of chaos or characterize the idea of the importance of little tiny changes in initial conditions. And that's what something you might have heard of this idea. This is a chaotic time scale or also known as the Lyapunov time scale. And the idea is if I take two things that are almost exactly the same and I just change one by a little bit, how long does it take before those two systems diverge and look nothing like each other? And that's what's being shown in this plot here. So this is time measured in millions of years. And that's this idea of the divergence between what are called siblings. So these are all things that look almost exactly like our solar system. They have, the planets are all in almost exactly the same place, but maybe I move Jupiter by two centimeters, or I move Uranus by a meter. And just that little tiny change can create this huge diversity of systems. And these labels here, these are millions of years. This is just telling us sort of how long it takes for the systems to become very different. For some systems, it maybe happens in 10 million years. From some, for some systems, it takes hundreds of millions of years. And so I showed you that first movie of all the planets going crazy and kicking each other around, and I called that chaos. This is also chaos, but keep in mind that chaos, you know, when we think of that colloquially, we think of it as something that becomes a mess. But formally, that's not what chaos means. It just means it's unpredictable. And so we can have chaos in our own solar system. We can describe our solar system as chaotic, and it doesn't mean that tomorrow, you know, Jupiter is going to leave. It just means that if I go far enough into the future, I can't tell you exactly where Jupiter is going to be. And so our own solar system, and we think, pretty much all systems that have this many bodies interacting gravitationally um, are formally chaotic. Uh, now, it's true that you can have simulations that will show you that the solar system is eventually going to fall apart, um, but for those of us on Earth, it turns out that the evolution of the sun is likely going to be a bigger problem. So there are systems that are chaotic. Um, I think I'm going to skip over this. There are, there are, I mentioned before, there's resonances in the solar system we've observed resonances in extrasolar planetary systems. We've observed resonances um, in the Kepler systems. That's what's being shown here. Um, but I want to talk about one of my favorite systems just for a few minutes at the end. Um, and that's what I want to call the most famous circumbinary system. So what I'm showing on here, this green circle 
and the red circle. That's that circumbinary system that I talked about before from Kepler, which we initially thought had two planets in it, uh, the one where you had the, the stars that had an orbital period of seven days, and I showed you that movie from the grad student. So that's what this green line and the red line, that represents those orbits. Now I've taken this other secret circumbinary system, and I've scaled it so that the binary in the center has the same separation. That's the gray, which is the, uh, the uh, star system compared to my secret system, which is in black dashed lines. And then these other dashed lines show you the orbits of the other bodies. And speaking of resonances, it turns out that the orbital configuration in this secret system is very close to a 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 system of orbital resonances. Did I get that right? Oh, sorry, I forgot. 6. 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6. Very close to that. So does anybody know what the secret most famous circumbinary system is? You all do know. You just don't know that you know. The solar system, we, there's, not two, there's, it, there's not two stars in the solar system, but it is in the solar system. It's Pluto! Pluto, you thought you were really sad because Pluto was not a planet, but Pluto is so much cooler than a planet because it is our own solar system analog for a circumbinary planetary system. So Pluto is the one you've heard of. Maybe you haven't heard of Charon or Karen, which people call a moon, but it is not a moon. The mass ratio between Pluto and Charon is 10 to 1. Our Earth's moon, that's 100 to 1, and that's really big for a moon. Most moons are much, much smaller. Dynamically speaking, this is a binary. Now, as of a few years ago, we knew of these two other these things are actually moons, Nix and Hydra, these two other guys that orbit around the, 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 the center of mass of Pluto and Charon. Now, the mass ratio between Nix and Hydra and Pluto and Charon, that's maybe 10 to the minus 4, 10 to the minus 5, so that's 1 to 10,000, 1 to 100,000. Those are moons. And I'll tell you in a little bit how we can actually use this idea of architecture to understand more about those masses. What's really exciting, though, is that as of 2012, we found two more bodies in the system. So it's not just Pluto and Charon, but there's Styx, which has, this is uh, 1 to 3, and then there's Nix, that's 1 to 4 near that orbital resonance, and then there's Kerberos, that's 1 to 5, and then there's Hydra, that's near 1 to 6. So it's this incredibly complex circumbinary analog right here at home. And what's particularly exciting is that the New Horizons mission is on its way to Pluto right now. It's going to arrive Bastille Day 2015, so mark your calendars. We're going to get some very, very exciting new data. Um, the, the thing that I think is really amazing is about two weeks before they're scheduled to arrive, they've had this, the, space, the, the mission's basically been asleep since it you know, left the inner solar system back in you know, 2006. It's kind of sleeping. About two weeks before it arrives, it's going to wake up and it's going to look in here and say, oh my god, am I going to run into anything? Are there any rocks I didn't know about? That's why they found all these guys, because they've been looking, trying to make sure that they don't run their very, very expensive spacecraft into a big rock. Because e e at these distances, right, things like this are moving effectively like bullets. So even a tiny little rock would be very damaging. So they're going to turn it on two weeks before, and hopefully they're not going to see any rocks in their way, but they have a lot of backup plans.
So anyways, you know, in, in light of trying to understand what New Horizons might see, what we can do is we can use all the stuff we've learned about architecture and dynamics to try to actually infer something about the composition of the bodies in the solar system. So remember, I told you that um, gravity, right, gravity cares about mass and separation. And if you put things too close together, they're unstable. So if you look at this system, right, these things are really quite close together. They're very tightly packed. And so what we know from dynamics is that if I make these guys too massive, the kicks between them will be really big and the system would fall apart. And we're pretty sure this system has survived for at least a billion years around, you know, the lifetime of our solar system. So we can use that knowledge to learn something about the composition. And the reason that we have to do this, the reason it's, it's especially tricky to learn about masses of things in our own solar system is that rocks, unlike stars, they don't burn hydrogen or helium. And so how much light they emit is a function of both how big they are and how shiny they are, how much albedo there is, right? If I give you a rock and a snowball and you shine a flashlight at both, the snowball is going to reflect a lot more light back at you than the star. I mean, than the rock. So if I put the, the star, the rock and the snowball really far away, the only way you can tell that maybe they're about the same size is if you know that they're made of different things. And so what we can try to do is use a combination of dynamics and the amount of light we detect from these bodies to learn about the albedo, the reflectiveness, and therefore the composition. So you can see, right, these, these numbers tell you that obviously asphalt is a lot less reflective than fresh snow. And so we can figure out maybe where these uh, moons around Pluto and Charon live on this diagram. And just to sort of drive this home, the idea that it's harder to learn things about rocks than it is about stars sometimes, this is a comparison of sort of the best things we know about the masses of the Pluto-Charon system. And this is a data table from a recent paper on one of the circumbinary planetary systems. The thing I want to point your attention to are the error bars here, these plus minus symbols. You can see that the errors on the stars and the planets, 0 0.016, 0.00065. These are really tiny. This is because when we have a lot of photons coming to us from stars, it's very, very easy to learn things. By comparison, look at the error bars on the bodies in the solar system, particularly look at Nix and Hydra. Uh, I'm not sure if you can read this, but the mass of Nix in this estimate goes from 10 to the 16 to 10 to the 18 kilograms. That's a factor of 100. That's terribly constrained. And that's, again, because if you don't know what something's made of, it's very, very hard to know how much it weighs. And so what we can do is we can, again, use dynamics to get a handle on this. We can take this very, very compact system and ask, well, we know what the, the laws of gravity tell us. We can learn whether or not it should be stable as a function of how massive these guys are. And in particular, we're going to try to see if we can learn about the mass of Nix and the mass of Hydra based on the fact that this whole system is stable. And so you can consider various limits. You could imagine, well, is anything just stable going around this, this effective binary system? Pretty much anything is. You could ask, are any two things stable going about this center, center of mass? Pretty much anything is. 
And then if you start to complicate the question, you ask, well, what would be stable if you have three things going around the center of mass? It turns out now mass starts to matter, and what we really want to do is study the full system numerically in our computers. And for full disclosure, we did the initial calculations actually before sticks had been discovered, although our follow-up work has shown that sticks is actually not very interesting. And we treat this little tiny guy, Kerberos, we treat it as sort of a test mass. So we're really just saying, I don't care how big this guy is. You can be as small as you want. I want to know under what conditions how big these guys can be without the whole system falling apart. And to cut the, a long story short, what we find is that based on the masses that allow this system to survive with these orbits that are very, very tightly packed over the lifetime of the solar system, Nix and Hydra have to be pretty icy. So for the uh, experts in the room, I'm showing mass uh, on the x-axis here and the time it takes the system to fall apart in years on the y-axis. And these different colors just tell you about different averages. But the basic point is, if you follow these lines up to the top here, this shows that the albedo, the reflectiveness of these bodies, after about a billion years, if you want it to survive for a billion years, it has to be somewhere like 0 0.4, 0 0.5 maybe. It has to be really icy. And so the reason I think this is exciting is because we've learned that we can actually learn a lot about the whole planet formation process from these really, really tiny bodies all the way at the edge of our solar system. Because, first of all, just the fact that these bodies exist tells us something about the initial densities in the nebula that formed our solar system. It tells you how frequently maybe these bodies were colliding with each other at large radii. And the fact that we can measure mass and brightness and learn something about composition means we actually know what that stuff is made of all the way out at the edge of our solar system. We can tell where the objects may be formed. And if we know where objects formed, maybe we can learn how they moved in the disk through all those different migration mechanisms that I talked about. We now have evidence both from this system and from the meteorites that we observe here on Earth that there was probably a lot of mixing in the early system, maybe stuff that started out at large radii, came to small radii. We can study sort of the details of how things were heated based on the structure of these little rocks. We can use uh, radioactive dating to tell us how long uh, the rocks have been around. So from our own solar system, we can actually um, learn a lot. But I would argue that we actually still have a whole lot to learn. We have these models. They can tell us some things, but we're still really working out the details. So I hope you'll stay tuned because I think the field of planet formation and exoplanets um, has a lot more to offer. So check back in in the coming years because I think it's going to stay an exciting field for a long time. Thank you very much for your attention. And thank you very much, Caitlin. We have time for a few questions. Yes, we have a question here. So when we find exoplanets, we usually, you know, find the systems or, or the planets. Do we have the technology to find or have we seen like uh, disks, like exoplanets that are currently in the stage of forming? That's a great question, and that's actually, that's something that we're really working hard on right here in Arizona. I mentioned those special telescopes called ADAPT that have adaptive optics. That's what we're doing right now. So we can very easily detect the disks in which we think planets form. We've seen lots of examples of those disks of gas and dust. Sometimes those disks have holes in them, and we're now using, like they have gaps. So we'll see the star is here, you'll see disk, and then there'll be a hole. 
There's nothing there, and then there's more disk on the outside. And we think those, may be, those holes may be evidence for where there are planets. We haven't seen something that's a real, like that we can definitely say is a planet living in one of those holes, but that's sort of the next step. And our telescopes are just getting sensitive enough now to where we're going to be able to do that. So watch for press releases from this department because we're going to have one soon, I guarantee it. Hi, um, what is the relationship between the plane of our solar system and the plane of all the other solar systems we're studying relative to the plane of the galaxy and the spiral arms? Uh, so the, the inclinations are uh, isotropic, as far as we can tell. So there's no preferred orientation of planetary systems relative to, say, the orbital plane of the galaxy. Yeah, they're all around. Any other questions? Oh, down front. I just got a paper in Nature magazine about a new field called exocomets. Mm -hmm. It comes from uh, eight years of HARPS spectroscopic data from Beta Pictaris, mm -hmm. finding about 200 comets that transit in front of that star. Is this a new field? Of course, I never heard of it before. And what do we hope to learn from this? So, I, I, what I would say is that you know, studying small bodies outside of the solar system has been going on since the 80s. It's just the size of the things changes. So we've known about debris disks, like the thing around Betapic, since the, the, since the late 80s. And so what, what, you're able, what we're able to do now with you know, more and more precise monitoring is learn something about the composition, more and more about the composition of that material. And again, that goes back to trying to understand the process of planet formation by knowing what the sort of constituent parts are made of. So, um, you can call it a new field because they're studying things that are a slightly different size or they're studying it uh, in maybe more detail than has been done in the past, but we've known about this, this type of material around other stars for, for quite some time now. I've got an app on my iPad called Exoplanets. Yes. It's always being updated with new finds. Yes. And one of the things I've noticed is that uh, so many of them are really tight orbits around their suns. And I was wondering, what would be the chemical composition of something so close to a star? That's a great question. So one thing to keep in mind is that the reason that so many of them are so close is that those are the easiest ones to find, right? For both the transiting method, where they block out light, the chance that it'll be aligned relative to you correctly, that's easier if it's close. And for the radial velocity technique, the gravitational pull when it's close is also bigger. So if we actually do the statistics, we think that the frequency of planets gets larger and larger as you go to bigger and bigger separations. So we're only seeing the close ones, but there's probably a lot more further out. In terms of what they're made of, it seems quite diverse based on our measurements of mass and radius, which tell us about density. So there are things that are really quite rocky, like the Earth. There are things that are a little bit bigger than the Earth that are rocky with a big gaseous envelope, um, but understanding in detail the different compositions is really important for understanding this full picture because then we can learn where the material came from. So uh, we think it's not so different from our own solar system in that there's you know, silicate rocks and maybe in some cases hydrogen and helium atmospheres. There's evidence of water in some of the atmospheres. So it's not so foreign um, because as soon as you get outside of the very, very tight orbits, you can sort of have the same molecules that we have here on Earth, um, but the abundances are going to be different. Any other questions? 
Yes, we'll take one more. You said that um, Sharon was orbiting around uh, Pluto mm -hmm. in a binary fashion. For our solar system to have a structure like that in it, have you ever seen any other systems like that in the other systems you've found? We haven't found one yet, um, because if you imagine trying to find Pluto in another system, it would be extremely hard because it's very, very far away and it's very, very small. So none of our detection methods would find anything like that. Now, there are people who are looking at this, the Kepler data, which is the transit mission where you have the eclipses, and they're looking to see if they can find these sort of moon-like systems where you have a more massive planet and then a less massive thing in orbit around it, because in principle, you could detect the sort of extra transit of both of those bodies. We haven't found one yet. It's a very sort of intensive problem. It's very degenerate in the sense that there are lots of different ways you could get something that looked like that. So we don't have any evidence for it yet, but I'm not, I'm not surprised. And if we look in our own Kuiper belt, the, you know, the stuff that Pluto orbits in, there's a whole lot of bodies that are quite a lot like it. There's a lot of what we call binary, uh, binary Kuiper belt objects, so things that are not very different in mass that are orbiting about each other. But remember that that orbit is very, very tight compared to the orbit around the sun. So Pluto-Sharon goes around each other in six days, but it takes, you know, uh, what is it, thousands? It's thousands? 249 200, 249 years. 249 years. 249 years for Pluto and Sharon to go around the sun. So it's very, very different scale. All right. I would like to remind you that our next public evening is two weeks from tonight on November the 10th, but it's not here. We will meet across the street at the Flandreau Science Center, and I'm going to give you a look at our brand new planetarium projection system in the Flandreau Planetarium, and I'm not going to charge you anything for it. Don't miss it. It's amazing. <laughs> so I'll be sitting behind the Planetarium Council and give you a show and show you the range of what can be done with our new planetarium projection system. That's two weeks from tonight at 7.30, November the 10th. I hope to see some of you at Professor Rowe's lecture a week from Wednesday on the 5th of November about what happened to the dinosaurs. It, the telescope is open. Please feel free to climb up the stairs and go look through the telescope. I will stamp student assignments down here. And let us thank Professor Cratter one more time. <laughs>